Open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 1. If you're new to our church, uh, there are also in your bulletin sermon notes, if, if that would help you to uh, follow along and to take some things home with you. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a series of sermons about your thinking and uh, making your thoughts like God's thoughts. As we went to uh, Tuckwilla yesterday, we were reminded of the traffic. In fact, I couldn't believe it. We, a couple of our son-in-laws, our, our only two son-in-laws, as a matter of fact, haven't seen, never saw the house that we lived in where the kids grew up. That you know, We were there for 15 years almost, and, and basically the whole time the kids were in school, they were there. So it's a big part of their life, and we wanted to show it to them. And, and there's an intern at the church there now and his wife that lives there, and, and uh, they graciously said they'd let us come in. And, as we walked outside, you know, the house that we lived in was about as far away from I-5 as uh, maybe the other side of the property where the coffee shop is. I mean, if I was standing here, I-5 was about that far away. And it's like 10 lanes wide, maybe 12 lanes wide now. And, you know, we got used to the noise. And we could stand outside and talk to each other. And, you know, we could talk across a space like this and just put the noise out of our mind. I couldn't believe how noisy it was yesterday. As we're standing out there, it was just... It was just kind of screaming, and I thought, oh, thank God for Ferndale. Man, <laughs> Woohoo! I live on a dead-end cul-de-sac up on the hill, and, you know, the worst noise we ever have is the neighbors shooting off some fireworks on the 4th of July. <clears throat> but when I came here, I had uh, an expectation of what the traffic would be like. You know, living in Ferndale, or living in Tuckwillow, we got used to the hubbub and the fly around all the time, but I remembered in my first church over here on the east side of the county that, boy, the traffic was always a breeze, it was no big deal. And I was seriously disappointed when I came here and pulled out on one of these streets, and I had to wait for like four or five cars to go before I could get out. <laughs> I'm thinking, what in the world? This is supposed to be, you know, the county, it's supposed to be out in the boondocks here, but, um, when I found the 25-mile-an-hour speed limit everywhere in Ferndale, I thought, what in the world are they thinking? You know, I come from the city. Our whole society has been speeding up in recent years. The invention of the computer and then the cell phone and the Internet has made us believe that instantaneous communication is normal. And when we go to the grocery store and somebody takes the time to get their checkbook out, they're in the express lane and they're writing a check. Man, don't you want to say, who do you think you are slowing us all down? We have many important things to do, you know. The younger generation even talks and listens fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which means, don't bore me with the details, get on to the important stuff. And while all of this hurry may be, may be an acceptable societal shift, it doesn't help us think and live righteously because our thoughts and actions have been accelerated to the point that they often seem to be automatic, out of control, and thus unchangeable. Nothing I can do about it. The truth is that we're going to learn today that if we're going to renew our minds and think like Christ, we're going to have to slow down our thought processes and find those points that need to be made like Christ. Please follow as I read from James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For he cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want to talk to you today about breaking down your thoughts. And that is not a misspelling. Breaking as in putting the brake on and slowing down and finding what's really going on in your thought life. And the first thing that I want to say is this. Sinful thoughts are born in the desires of the flesh. James sets out to tell us how sin happens and he says sin happens it begins in the desires of the flesh sinful thoughts are born in the desires of the flesh each one is tempted verse 14 when he is drawn away by his own desires whatever is wicked and sinful and disgusting in your mind did not come from god Verse 13 says, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. Don't ever look up to heaven and say, God, why are you letting me think these thoughts? God, why are you putting these things in my mind? Let no one say that. God says the thoughts that are troubling, the thoughts that are sinful come from our fleshly desires. God did not create evil. Satan created evil and then helped adam and eve to bring it into this world your sinful thoughts are yours and yours alone they do not come from god and also your thoughts do not come from other people now i know that in the in the last few weeks as i've been preaching this series of sermons i've made a a, a great point of saying the world around us presses the its ideas on us and that is true but ultimately the press can only cause you to act on the desires of your sinful flesh. Your thoughts do not come from other people. Other people cannot make you think or do. I suppose unless they literally put a gun to your head. You know, yeah, okay, I understand. But it's much more common for us to go, well, you know, Pastor Dave, she did this or he did that, and I just couldn't help myself doesn't happen our thoughts do not come from other people they might encourage our sinful thoughts by the lives they live but they cannot cause us to think sinfully we think up our sinful thoughts on ourselves. the real source of our thoughts are our own fleshly desires let me put it this way your flesh will automatically generate a desire in response to any event or circumstance you encounter. 
Now, I did not say that was a good thought. And again, I've said much the last three weeks about how you need to actively choose what you're going to think. And that's because your flesh will automatically go, hey, do this, think that. In response to any event you encounter, just to make sure that you're thinking what I'm thinking, let's be reminded of what the desires of the flesh are. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These three things seem to be God's summary definition of what goes on in our natural, in our, in our human existence. The lust of the flesh is a desire for pleasure. Now, it's not wrong to desire pleasure. It's wrong to sinfully act on the God-given desire. God made us with a capacity to taste things. He could have made us without that, and somehow we could have eaten things that were just bland all the time. And he could have sustained us physically, but he gave us the capacity to, to see that New York steak and to hear it sizzle and to go, thank you, God. <laughs> okay? That's, that's a God-given thing. But God says, don't live by your desires. Live by the the control of the Spirit. God gave us a desire for sex. It is a God-given drive. God saw Adam that he was alone and it was not good and he made a helper for him and it was a woman and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And he saw everything that he created and behold, it was very good. But the use of the God-given desire has to be controlled by the God-given plan. We have a desire for rest after work. That's a God-given desire put in there so that we'll stop and slow down and snooze. And when we ignore that desire for rest, we do it to our own hurt. It is not godly to be a workaholic, even if you're a pastor or a missionary. It's not godly. It's godly to rest, and it's godly to take that day off, that Sabbath rest, absolutely. But neither is it godly to live by the desire for rest and be lazy. You see, the desire is godly, but how it gets used has to fit with God's pattern. And so God says, if you let your flesh dictate your life, not God's word, then you're just going to be a sensual person who always lives to please themselves. Second thing, the source of our thoughts in terms of our own fleshly existence, the lust of the eyes, which is a desire for possessions. And I would just summarize that as the word envy. And I'll give you some examples of this in a minute. Number three, the pride of life, which I believe could best be described as a desire for prominence. You could use the word the esteem of other people. You could use a position as in people would lift you up and say you're something great. The idea of being prominent, which comes from pride. Now let me break these down a little bit. The first of these, the lust of the flesh, which is a desire for pleasure or sensuality. If you're a man and you see a beautiful woman, your flesh will immediately, look at verse 14, Create a desire that will entice you. Now again, 
If you're looking at your wife, it's a godly thing. But if you're looking at somebody else, it's not a godly thing. But what happens when you see the, the beautiful woman, your flesh goes, boom. Now, right at that moment is the change point. We're going to talk about that later. But your flesh automatically generates that. If you are a woman and a gracious, kind man pays you a compliment at work, your flesh may go, ooh, my husband's a bum. Look at this guy. Your flesh will automatically react or respond. When you're hungry and you're waiting in line for a cookie in the welcome room, your flesh says, Get out of my way. Can I get a witness? Come on, you know it. You know it. Hurry up, I want food. My blood sugar is low. Oh, yeah. Whatever. You see, our flesh self-generates responses based on our God-given desires to any circumstance we encounter. When a difficulty comes at work or school or in a relationship, your flesh will say, sensuality, let's do something that feels good. Because right here, this does not feel good. Let's drink alcohol. Feels good. It's sensuality. It feels good when I drink alcohol. It feels good when I take drugs. It feels good when I eat. It feels good when I look at pornography. It feels good when I go shopping. This doesn't feel good. I'm going to go do something that feels good. Your flesh will look at a difficulty, a trial, a hardship, and go, get away. When your parents say, take out the trash, please, your flesh will cry out, I'm comfortable in this big chair. I don't want to get up. What you say is, yeah, in a minute. But your flesh has generated an automatic response to a circumstance. And that's what happens. When you come to church and it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too hard or it's too soft or it's too bright or it's too dim or it's too loud or it's too quiet... Are you going to speak out of godly concern or just the seeking of pleasure for your own person? You see, your flesh will respond. What about the lust of the eyes, the desire for possessions? When Eve saw the fruit, she went, it's pleasant to the eyes. What is that in us? We look at something and we go, that looks good. I want that. Well, I've called that envy. Uh, we could call it, uh, uh, what's the word for uh, wanting stuff? Coveting. Even cheap cars have shiny paint. Isn't that right? Here's what I read in the paper yesterday. This is a review of the new 2009 Chrysler 300C. My wife's old boss had a car like that. She calls it the Dick Tracy car. You know, kind of looks like that. But listen, listen to how it's written about. The 425 horsepower 
instills confidence that few other engines can. Zero to 60 in five seconds. Less than 12 seconds later, you're cruising at 100 miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah. But it's the combination of power and subdued looks that creates such a perfect road monster. If people don't notice the small SRT8 badge on the back, they'll never expect this menacing machine to explode off the line the way it can. And all they'll see are your taillights and all they'll hear is your laugh. I've got some loan applications right here. Like a piece of fine artwork, it gets better every time you look at it. The first glance says 300C, but then you look it over and you notice the Goodyear F1 supercar 20-inch tires, the forged aluminum rims, the dark black windows, the low-riding stance. There are other cues a more serious enthusiast might catch right away, such as the spoiler on the trunk, the big air inlets on the front fascia, designed to keep the big Brembo brakes cool. They may also notice the body-colored door handles and mirrors that are special to the SRT model. Now, nobody needs that car. (laughs) Yeah. We need to get from point A to point B. We need a little heat in the winter. We need a little cooling in the summer. But we don't need that car. But that car is designed so that when you look at it, you go, dude... (laughs) or for some of you it's an f-250 dually or whatever (laughs) you see there's something in our flesh that looks at pretty things at beautiful things and says give me i want you know there are shows on tv where they stage houses that is they they come into the house and they go you have too much junk if you didn't know that we're going to get rid of a bunch of it and kind of spread it around and put a couple new things and paint that wall and people come in and go oh this is beautiful it's the same house it was two minutes ago but it looks better and so people will buy it because it looks better the lust of the eyes Heard an ad for a Mustang on the Christian radio. On the Christian radio, when Mustang first came out with a new model, the, the renewed model a few years ago, and they said, when you drive down the road, it will turn heads. You see, your flesh will generate responses to the stuff of the world. Now, it's not wrong to own a car. It's not even wrong to own a shiny black car with nice wheels. This car is wicked. (laughs) But no one imagines themselves in a dirty car or a dirty house. Today it's pop it's it's so popular in dress today to look casual that you can spend much dollars on jeans that have been pre-ripped and pre-worn. I mean I don't know the exact dollar figures, but way more than a pair of full jeans. So you look casual. God forbid you should tuck your shirt in. What's wrong with you? 
But there are other people who want to look all put together, hair in place, and there are stores for them as well because we look and our flesh responds and we make choices based on that. And of course, for those who don't know Christ, that is what their choice is made on. And the advertisers know that, and so they write this stuff. And some guy read this, I guarantee you, and went, hey, those things are cheap now, baby. I have to have one of those. Because he lives by his flesh with no other thing added in. The pride of life, a desire for prominence. I heard an ad on the radio for the Bellevue Jaguar dealer and the radio spokesman said this, if you go to the Bellevue Jaguar dealer, they will treat you the way you deserve to be treated. Now what does that mean? That means that when you walk in there, they're going to they're going to bow and scrape and go, oh, yes, Mr. Lunsford, good to have you, Mr. Lunsford. Thanks for coming in, Mr. Lunsford. What can we show you, Mr. Lunsford, and blah, blah, blah. That's right. That's how I deserve to be treated. When people do that to you, or let's put it this way, when they do the opposite of that, we go, what the world's wrong with you? Don't you know who I am? I'm something. And that is our pride of life controlling us. The pride of life tosses out special thought ideas for parents who completely overlook their child's sinful behavior because their child would never do such things. Not my child. My child must be great because I am great. It does great damage to children. Causes parents, the pride of life causes parents to say, don't embarrass me. Really? Your kid's behavior is about you? Well, it is if you live by the pride of your life and not by the desire for God's glory in their life. Our flesh will respond to these things. The pride of life pushes some people to be ambitious constantly seeking to prove themselves by attaining some goal or some recognition to become elected to office, to win a beauty or a talent contest. And when they lose, they are crushed because I'm better than that. So do I need to go on or have I stepped on everybody's toes? Because that was my goal. Here's the deal, folks. Your flesh will self-generate responses to every circumstance you encounter. And you, if you are going to live righteously, you have to think righteously, which means you have to start perceiving, was that a fleshly thought I just had? Because if it is, I've got to go the opposite direction. Sinful thoughts are born in the desires of the flesh. Sinful thoughts are germinated into sinful actions by deliberate meditation. If you don't know what the word germinate means, it's when you take a seed and you put it into the ground and it gets uh, the heat of the sun and the water and the nutrients from the soil and eventually it germinates, it opens up, it becomes what it was intended to be, which is you know a plant or a vegetable, uh, whatever it is, flower. 
Your, look at verse 15. Verse 14 says, there is a desire from your flesh, your own desire, and then the desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth, it germinates. The desire, you see, your sinful desires are, your temptations to think wrongly are not sins yet until this stage. Sinful thoughts are germinated into actions by deliberate meditation. Your fleshly desires will tempt you to think sinful thoughts. If you choose to retain and meditate on those thoughts, either on purpose or by accident. Now, here's, let me tell you something. And I'll give you an example from my life. I've shared this before, but I think it's the clearest example I have. My folks had a friend named Oscar Pugsley. And uh, he used to come over to our house for dinner, and he would say to me, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. In other words, if you're something great, tell everybody about it, because nobody else is going to do it. Now, I didn't know that was sinful advice. And of course, he was just jerking my chain. He obviously thought I was smart enough to know that that was foolish advice. But I thought, well, okay, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. You may have grown up with a whole pack of sinful advice just because it's the way the world lives. I guarantee you, if you learned about relationships in the football locker room, and if you thought some of the stuff you learned was good, then you have sucked up a whole bunch of bad information. And so it's possible, hear me all the way out, it's possible to accidentally think the wrong thing. And I would call that Christian immaturity. There's a little difference between immaturity and willful rebellion. If you haven't known the Lord for very long, your way of thinking used to be just worldly, just like everybody else. And so you've got to learn what thoughts are righteous and what thoughts aren't. But if you've known the Lord and you know what is right and you are actively choosing to think and do the wrong thing, then that's willful rebellion. So it's possible that when your flesh responds to something, you go, yeah, let's do it. What I'm telling you today and what I tell you every week is, this is the way for you to sort out your thoughts. And we'll come to some more of that in a minute. Your flesh will tempt you to think sinful thoughts if you choose to retain and meditate on those thoughts. The result will be sin. Make no mistake, the battle is won or lost in your mind. Colossians 3.1 says, If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind, actively choose to think on the things above, not the things below. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2. These famous verses that talk about trials and how we should respond. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Literally, the word count means to lead the way, to let your attitude toward difficulty be a different attitude because your reactionary attitude will not be good. You will look at trials and say, oh, that's terrible. God says, no, wait a minute. Look at the hardship and say, God's at work. Some of your testimonies this morning reference that. 
You know, you have learned through your trial that if you pray and depend on God, God will take care of you. And the next time you go through a trial, you should be going, here's another chance for me to depend on God. God's going to do something through this difficulty. I don't have to look at the difficulty and go, ah! Because that's our flesh. Our flesh goes, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Run away. God says, that's uncomfortable. Look at James 1, 2 through 5. Stay there. Trust in me. Live righteously. Call on me, and I will lead you through it and grow you up. But that won't happen if you run on autopilot. There must be a deliberateness of choosing to put away the fleshly thoughtful desires and to focus on the righteous thoughts. The third thing that we need to understand today is this. Sinful thinking results in a decaying life. Look at verse 15. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now this is, when God uses the word death, he's not always talking about the termination of your human life. He talks about eternal death as in separation from God after you die. He talks about a death quality of life in contrast to what Jesus said in John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He was speaking to people who were alive. They weren't dead. And so there is a spiritual life quality of life there is a spiritual death quality of life if you choose to live in sin you will reap a spiritual death quality of life i've called that a decaying life a couple of weeks ago when i was riding with the deputy we took someone to jail and there was another fellow being booked into the jail and we had all this big discussion about him eluding the police. The police saw his broken taillight and thought, huh, let's go stop him and see what else is wrong with his car. And when, when the deputy pulled in behind him with the lights on, he ran. And big thing ensued. And there he is sitting, waiting to be booked into the jail with the deputy that brought him in. And we're sitting there having this real nice conversation, just like guys hanging out playing cards. I mean, it was really quite congen- congenial. And he said, I don't run from the police. I'm not stupid. And I said, well, back that up. Those are two separate statements, aren't they? (laughs) He just proved (laughs) that he is stupid because he did run from the police. I didn't quite say it quite that bluntly, but I just said, hey, those are two separate things. And I just left it there. And he went, yeah, yeah, I went like that, you know. Why did he do that? (laughs) Because his flesh put out a thought and he ran with it. And what was the result of him running with the fleshly thought? It was more ruination in his life. I don't know what it costs to be eluded, you know. I don't know what the fines are and the jail time and all that. But I know his life didn't get better when he acted on that sinful impulse. And that's what God is telling us, Christian. Our thinking needs to be righteous so our behavior will be righteous so we can have the blessing God wants to give us. But if we think in sin and act in sin, we get a decaying kind of life. Now this is the point 
at which I start to make enemies. Unless you're willing to listen all the way through this and come next week and listen as well. Because I'm going to put some words on the screen that in my opinion are the result, or excuse me, I'm going to put some words on the screen that describe a decaying quality of life, not an enriching spiritual quality of life. And if you, especially if you violently disagree with me, I want you to be man or woman enough to come talk to me about it so I can open the scripture further. But believe me, I'm going to put these words on the screen because I love you. Because if you have not yet recognized that you're living in a decaying quality of life, you're missing out on the joy and the peace of the Lord. Sinful thinking results in a decaying quality of life. Folks, depression is not a sin, but depression is the result of sinful thinking. And I'm going to speak at length about this next week, but let me just say this right now. Failures and losses and hardships in your life are real. But the question is, what do you meditate on in response to that reality? If you meditate on the loss or the difficulty or the hardship, you will become depressed. But if you meditate on the greatness of God to change your world and your life, you will live victoriously through a difficulty. Bitterness. Bitterness is a response to an injustice. Somebody did me wrong. Arr, 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 over and over and over. I knew a fellow 25 years ago, I used to have coffee with him, had some interaction with him in the community, and his face looked like this. I can't even make my mouth do it. I'm not kidding you. His, if, his, if his face was at rest, the corners went down. And when we had coffee, he rehearsed the hurts of his life multiple times from years gone by. I'm telling you, that's a decaying quality of life. It's hard to let go of hurts, but when we do, God gives us his joy and his peace. It doesn't matter what people did. I'm walking with God. But how you think about the hurts of your life, which are real, but how you think and what you choose to think about is going to change your life. Hate. You may have legitimate reasons to be hateful. One of the, one of the fascinating things that God did here in our church Remember Emil Quinones, he's been so ill, he hasn't been in church in a long time. Emil Quinones was, uh, was a Spanish guy from, from New York who fought in World War II, and he didn't like the Japs. And you know who I called to go pick him up and bring him to church the first Sunday? A Jap! <laughs> Old hatreds die hard. God used that in his life. Now, did the Japanese do some bad things? Yes. But how do you choose to think about it? And how do you choose to see God's hand in the world? Hatred. Envy. You may be one of those people who started salivating when I read that ad. Oh, my old car is such a beater got to have that 
how you think about things. Being resentful, resentment, anger. Anger is a God-given response to injustice, but God says, be angry but don't sin, which clearly tells me that something in the way that I see those anger-inducing events has to be controlled according to God's Spirit or else I will be an angry person. And that is not godly. God says we should be living in His peace and joy, in His love for people, not in anger. People who are obsessed by sexual fantasy. This is not an addiction. It is an enslavement to sin. Any of these things can become enslavements. If you have a thought process in response to the events of life and then you act on that thought process and you do it over and over and over, pretty soon you'll have a habitual behavior that you will think is out of control. I can't do anything about it. It just happens. The thoughts just come. The actions just come. No, that's not true. You need to break down your thoughts. B-R-A-K. Break them down. Slow them down. Because what's happening is you are choosing to think some things that are wrong early in the process before the sin happens. Anxiety. If you are a person that is full of anxiety, it is the result of not thinking properly in response to your fleshly urges at the challenging circumstances around you. If you have panic attacks, it is anxiety let loose and gone wild. Real I'm not saying panic attacks aren't real. I'm not saying the things that you are responding to anxiously aren't real. But what God is saying is this. How we choose to see and respond to the events of our life will determine whether our life is decaying or enriching. Suicide. People contemplate suicide because usually of what we would typically call depression, let go. My life is so bad because of these things, these things, and if I meditate on that long enough, pretty soon I'm going to think, you know, it would just be better off for me to be dead. It would be better for my family and friends. It would be better for me, so I think I'm just going to kill myself. Now, some people for sure talk about suicide as a manipulation tool because they know if they talk about it, you're going to go, ooh, 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 and you're going to do whatever they want and so on, and that's the wrong response, by the way. But if you have thought about killing yourself or if you are thinking about killing yourself, it is because thoughts about other things in your life are not godly. Here's one that I put on just because it's a contemporary phenomenon. It's really no different than some of the others we've talked about. Cutting. One of the phenomenon in probably this last generation, although it could be older than that, is... Uh, taking a sharp object and cutting yourself, usually they, people cut themselves where it doesn't show because if it showed, then everybody would freak out because what's going on and so on. But it's the result of not dealing with difficulties in a godly way. And the person who cuts themselves gets a certain kind of a physical high because of the body's pain response and feels a certain pressure release because they can't deal with certain difficulties in their life. But it's not a godly thing, and it's not a harmless thing, and the physical harm isn't the real problem. The real problem is in your spirit. Friends, if these things are consuming you, it is because you have allowed your fleshly desires to run your life, and now you're reaping the rewards of sin 
which is a decaying life. But here's the great news. And I love this verse so much. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Rest for your soul. That's the potential that we have in Christ. Now, it's only possible in the righteous life. It's not some magic pill that God's going to drop on your life and it's going to get better overnight. No, but as you righteously think and righteously act, God is going to bring you his rest. To what page in the Bible can you turn and find an example of someone who lived in sin and then prospered? Now, there's some short-term prospering a little bit here and there. But let's turn that around. How many pages of the Bible can you turn to and find somebody who lived righteously even through difficulty and then God took care of them and blessed them and their life was good? That's what we're talking about here, folks. Let me, let me hurry through this last. Sinful thinking causes us to dishonor God. Would you look at verse 18? Verse 18 gives us the purpose of our salvation. Of his own will, of God's will, he caused us to be born again. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? So that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creature. The word first fruits refers to the sacrifice in the earlier part of the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, with the earliest crops. As soon as crops came up, they'd take part of it and wave it at God. It was called a wave offering, or, or they'd, they'd give some grain and oil to the priest, whatever it was, they'd say, God has blessed me, and here's the very first best part of it. God says he wants you to be his first fruit. He wants, he wants to hold you up and go, look at my children, look what they're doing. I think Hebrews 13 catches this when he says, Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. When you come to church and I say, What do you have to thank God for? And you go, Well, God did this and God did that and God did that. God's up in heaven going, Oh, man, thank you. That's so great. I love you for that. It just blesses him. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share those are also sacrifices. Your righteous living, your righteous thinking, honors God. What do people think about God when they know you are one of his children? What do other people think about God when they know you are a Christian? That's what this is talking about. God says, I've saved you so that you can bring honor to me. When God says that you should live in a way that honors him, the flip side is this. God's reputation is on the line. Not just your quality of life. Some people are so steeped in a sinful way of thinking and behaving, they can't imagine letting go and experiencing the abundant life of Christ. While that might be a choice you can choose for yourself, as a child of God, you are not free to live in sin because you hurt God's reputation. As insignificant as you might want to think you are, you hurt God's reputation when you live righteously. Last point. Sinful thoughts can only be changed by breaking your thoughts, by slowing them down. Verse 19. This is a verse you ought to memorize. Verse 19 and 20, if you've never memorized them. So then, my brethren... Let every man be swift to hear, take it in, 
but slow to respond, slow to wrath. For your, let me paraphrase this, let me give you the Lunsford paraphrase. For the natural responses of your sinful flesh to the circumstances of your world do not produce the righteousness of God. God says don't react, but do respond biblically, thoughtfully, prayerfully to the events of your life. You need to be honest enough to see your actions for what they are and then to slow down your response to the events of your life and examine your thoughts for godliness. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold what, what is good. When you go out of here today, the challenge is this. Don't just do what you've always done. Don't just think what you've always thought. Stop and go, is that a righteous thought? Or is it a fleshly thought? And if you can't figure it out on the spot, go to God's Word. If you can't find it in God's Word, call up some mature Christian and say, you know, I was thinking this the other day. Do you think that's a righteous thought? You might think your thoughts and sinful actions happen all at once, but they do not. You are choosing to respond in ways that suit your flesh. The only way to think and act righteously is to be careful, purposeful, and spiritual in the thoughts you think and the actions you choose. As we came home uh, last weekend from eastern Washington uh, on Memorial Day, on Stephen's Pass, we had the opportunity to get intimately acquainted with the National Forest while we sat in stop-and-go traffic for two hours. And there ain't much to see between Sky Comish and Monroe. Thankfully, there was somebody out peddling water for a buck a bottle, and we gladly bought one as we walked. You know, wave the dollar bill, and they come running up to the car. It seems like most of the time, we tend to think that nothing is worse than slowing down. It feels like we're wasting time. But if you want to get control of your mind and your life, you need to break your thoughts and do what the psalmist did when he said this, be still and know that I am God. May God help us hear his voice from his word and his spirit as he works to renew our minds. Worship team, come. We're going to sing a song that we've used as a theme. And I hope it sticks in your mind as well as the scripture. And I hope it becomes your prayer. Let's stand and sing it together.